Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. In this difficult time, when things seem so bleak, where do you look for hope? This week's message is based on an entry of the journal of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Pastor David Cartwright charts Wesley's Christian journey leading to what is called Aldergate's Day, the day that Wesley had an epiphany about what is perhaps the central question for the Christian faith. From where does your hope and salvation come? As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I'll invite you to turn first in your Bible to the book of Romans in chapter 3. We will begin reading there when we begin reading Scripture. Today's message is going to be, it's going to feel quite unusual. Um, it's, it's going to take a different approach, and so I'll grant that you'll bear with me for a short time as we uh, come before God in, in these moments. Um, let me begin by asking this question. In what or in whom does your hope for salvation lie? Really? In what or in whom does your hope for salvation lie? That's a question that John Wesley uh, had to come to terms with, and I suspect that many of us in one way or another might struggle to really answer that question in life-changing ways. What I want to begin to do today is to give you a little bit of a paraphrase or a summary of John Wesley's spiritual journey around something that happened to him on this date in 1738. If you have a United Methodist calendar, you would see that today is what we call Aldersgate Day. It is a time that we remember a transformational experience in John Wesley's life when he said those words that have become very familiar in Methodist circles, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Well, we want to revisit his journal entry for May the 24th of 1738 and get a little bit of a feel for his, journey, uh, his spiritual experience. It, that, that journal entry was much longer. It's about six pages in the, the book that I have, where most journal entries might have been a paragraph to a page long. This is about six pages of journal entry. And he admits at the very beginning that what he needs to do is to go back and to give you a, a history of his own spiritual life so that we can understand what, why that day was so important. And here's how he begins to describe it. He goes back to his early life as a child, from about age from birth to ten, and he says, what I was taught during all those years was that for me to uh, have salvation, for me to be pleasing in the sight of God, was to keep all the commandments of God. And that's what he was taught as a young child, that what he needed to do was to keep all of the commandments of God, and by that he would be acceptable in God's sight. Okay? Now, that's really uh, not very different from what many children would, would remember in their own upbringing. 
What, what do we usually do with children when we're bringing them up in the church? Okay? We start teaching them as early as they're able to comprehend it that God loves them, which he certainly does. That's not hard to grasp. And then as soon as they're of an age to start you know, learning some things, what we usually start doing them is teaching them right from wrong. Okay? Nearly every parent does that with their child. As soon as they start to understand it, you teach them right from wrong. And in a church setting, we typically ground that in God's commandments because God lays down for us those things that in his sight are right and those things in his sight that are wrong. And as soon as they're able to grasp that, we teach them. This is right, this is wrong. Why? Because God said so. So what John Wesley experienced really was not that different than most of us, if we were children raised in the church, would have experienced. So from the beginning, he's already being hardwired to think that to be pleasing in God's sight boiled down to keeping the commandments of God. Well, as he progresses into his uh, years after that, what we would call teenage years, although they didn't use that term back in those days, um, he says, here's how he frames that period of his, his life, that he continued to do his religious practices. He still, I, I, still, uh, I still read my scriptures. I still prayed. He still worshipped as he was supposed to. But he also recognizes that that was a period of life when sin started to become for, more familiar to him. He said, I realized that there were outward sins in my life. I, I knew that they were sins, and yet I, I continued to, to do them. They just became a part of who he was, even though he knew that they weren't right. Uh, his whole experience of, of religion was outward. He said, I knew nothing at that time of anything that people would have called relig inward religion, nothing of in, uh, religion of the heart. It was all an outward expression. And if you would have asked me during those years what hope I would have had to be saved... My answer would have been that uh, even though I was sinning, I didn't sin so badly as other people did, um, I still had a, a, a good inclination toward the things of religion, and I still practiced those things. I prayed, I read my Bible, and so that's, that's the basis upon which John Wesley would have, ba have had his, his hope of salvation. Take that then into the next step, what we might call his late teen years progressing into adulthood, uh, a time that he says he went away to school, which would, would have been university for him. Uh, it's a time in which he continued his uh, religious practices. He still prayed. He still read his Bible. He even took it a step further. He had a, a curiosity to learn the things about the Christian religion. He, he read extensively of uh, people who had written about the Christian faith. He read extensively of the New Testament commentaries that were available to him. And so all of these things were, were a part of what he did. But at the same time, he confesses that those outward sins that had become so much a part of who he was did nothing more than increase. He said, I became uh, more, uh, you know, I, I, I practiced them at a greater rate. I became more familiar with them. I became more complacent with them. He said, during those periods, I, I entered into short periods in which I would struggle against it. God would convict him that these things were sin, and he would enter into a struggle, but the struggle was never successful. And he looks back at that period of his life and he says, if you would have asked me what hope I would have had for salvation, I wouldn't have even known what to tell you. 
except maybe that God might have granted me grace on, on the basis of those periods that he called uh, nothing more than tran transient fits against sin in his life. Maybe God would have granted that as some means of salvation. But other than that, he really wouldn't have known. And then at age 22, John Wesley entered into what were called then as holy orders. We would call it entering the ministry. And so in our minds and language, we would say he went off to seminary and went into the ministry. And that really was a time in which John Wesley's life changed in, in one manner, that he really, really got serious about the things of religion. His, his outward life changed. He, he, he rid himself of a lot of superfluities in life, a lot of extras. Uh, he, he increased in his giving of alms. He started doing more outward works of, of visiting people in prisons, uh, of uh, you know, just doing all of the outward works of righteousness that you and I might think are commendable to God. He got real serious about his life with sin. He, he, he endeavored as greatly as he could to eliminate sin from his life, although he still admits that it was a serious struggle for him. He was doing, if we looked at his life from an outward perspective, we would look at someone and say, he, he's doing everything right. He's doing everything right. And yet, even during that time, even though he confessed that he started to understand that there was such a thing as inward religion, that there was an inward expression of the law, that God's law was not just about what we did outwardly, but it was also about the, the, the attitude of our hearts. He recognized that. And when he looked back at that time, he would have said, and I quote, and I've tried to, uh, to, to keep the quotes to a minimum because I know they can be a little dry. But he said at that time, by my continued endeavor to keep God's whole law, inward and outward, to the utmost of my power, I was persuaded that I should be accepted of him and that I was even in that state, the, even then in a state of salvation. You hear what he's saying? When I looked at my life during that time, his, his, his attitude was, God had to accept me. I mean, look at the life I'm living. I'm being so obedient to his law. I'm studying. I'm doing all the outward uh, expressions of a, of a religious person. How could not God not accept me? And then something happened. And when he looks back on it, this is what he had to say. He says, Yet when, after continuing some years in this course, I apprehended myself to be near death, I could not find that all of this gave me any comfort or any assurance of acceptance with God. He didn't know. Here's what happened. In January of 1736, John Wesley found himself on a ship from England to the American colonies. He had left England going to America in order to convert the colonists and the native people there. When the ship was en route, they entered into a time when there was a storm that came upon them. It was a very violent storm. He, he records in his journal how the ship was being... Uh, uh, um, harmed in, in the way, it was being tossed to and fro. 
uh, passengers on the ship were fearful of their lives, including John Wesley himself. But he noted in his journal that there was one group of passengers, 20-something in number, who were Germans of the Moravian church. And he was struck by the fact that in the midst of all this storm, they were calm. He could see an assurance in those people that kept them from being afraid even of death. He asked them afterward, were you not afraid? And they said, no. Were your women and your children not afraid? And they said, no. And he couldn't understand why they had this strange assurance, even in the face of death, where he did not. And it bothered him. It bothered him the whole two years that he was in the American colonies. Two years later, he found himself going back. And after he got back to England, he struggled. Why is it that I have no assurance of my salvation? Read with me, if you would, from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. There are some scriptures that are relevant here. I've tried to place them in a strategic point. Paul records in Romans 3, beginning at verse 20, and I know it picks up in the beginning of a sentence. It says, Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Paul begins that little section with this grand statement, by the works of the law, no flesh is justified in God's sight. What had John Wesley been grounding all of his hope of salvation on? Works of the law. Look at me, God, how, how righteous I'm being. I am following, I'm studying your commandments, I'm following your commandments, I'm doing all of the expressions outwardly, I'm trying to apply them inwardly to my heart. If you would have asked him at the time what his hope of salvation would have been, it would have been the very thing that the Apostle Paul says here, that no flesh is justified by. And he goes on to say the reason is because the law was given not so that we might be justified by it, so that we would know what sin is. He goes on in another place and says, if God hadn't said do not covet, I wouldn't have known what coveting is. But when God said do not covet, all of a sudden I realized how much of a coveter I was. That's not really the way he said it, but that's essentially what he said. What does the law do? Actually, two things. It shows us the holiness of God, and it shows us how far, far short from it we fall. If it were not for the law, I wouldn't have known what a sinner I am. And Paul says, look, by, by the works of the law, you can't be justified. Why is it that we can't be justified by the works of the law? Because if we're trying to be justified by the works of the law, we have to keep the law perfectly. Tell me who can keep the law perfectly. Not one of us. Because every one of us will fall short. That's what he says in verse 23. Every one of us will fall short 
of the glory of God's perfect law. And if you fall short, you do not have, you do not have the, the, the capacity, you do not have the currency to be right in God's eyes by that means. And the very thing that was the foundation of John Wesley's hope of salvation, he came to understand that was, it was not. He had no hope in it. If we do not have hope by the works of the law, then what is our hope? Our hope is by faith in Jesus Christ. John Wesley got back to England two years after his experience, and he entered into a season of what I would call spiritual crisis. Now, as I go on, you can go on and flip in your Bible over to Philippians chapter 3. You'll be prepared to read there next. John Wesley arrived back in England on February the 1st of 1738. And as I said, he was struggling. He, he knew that there was something deficient in, in his faith. He knew that there was something lacking, but he needed to figure out what it was. Why is it that those people that I had encountered on the ship had, had this grounding that gave them an assurance? They weren't even afraid to face death, and yet I don't have that. God brought into John Wesley's life a man by the name of Peter Bowler. He was a bishop in the Moravian Church. And John Wesley and Peter Bowler established a friendship and soon embarked on a conversation of, of, of discussing this very issue. And Peter Bowler said to John Wesley that true faith in God brought with it a what is it he said? A constant peace that comes from a sense of forgiveness. And that's really struck John Wesley. How is it that I could have a constant peace from knowing that I am forgiven of God? He didn't have it himself, and it's almost like he didn't want to believe it. And Peter Bowler said, I guarantee you that it's true. John Wesley said that I, I, I can't believe that it's true. In fact, he, he said to Peter Bowler, I won't believe it unless you can tell me that there are people by their own experience who will tell me that it's true. Peter Bowler said, I'll have them to you tomorrow. And he did. On the very next day, Peter Bowler brought to him other people who confessed to John Wesley the reality that in their hearts there is this assurance that is shed abroad, that they have a, a guaranteed hope and peace, that they are accepted of God. And John Wesley said, all right, I'm in. If I can have it, I want it. So for this period between February and May, John Wesley embarks on this, on this seeking for that assurance that can come to him. And here's the way he said it. He resolved to seek it by two means. Two, two means. Number one, by absolutely renouncing all dependence in whole or in part upon my own works of righteousness on which I had really grounded my hope of salvation. And two, by adding to the constant use of all other means of grace the continual prayer for this very thing, 
justifying, saving faith, a full reliance on the blood of Christ shed for me. Those are words right out of his journal. He said, I have, he set upon on seeking that assurance by, by renouncing the works of, of, of the law that he had been uh, grounding his hope upon and seeking after by prayer and supplication that guarantee, that hope, that assurance that, that he was told would come to him. It strikes me how similar this is to what the Apostle Paul experienced in his own spiritual journey. Read with me, if you would, what Paul says in Philippians 3, beginning in the middle of verse 4, where Paul himself describes uh, what he had to give up in order to come to that point. He says, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Faith. It's very interesting to me that John Wesley entered something in his journal immediately after arriving back in England in February 1738. And it is, in his own words, a recognition of what the Apostle Paul just described himself. Paul described, look at all these things from a Jewish perspective. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I had everything, every credential that a Jew could possibly claim, I had it. And I had it to the nth degree. And Paul looks back and he said, I, I, found, I came to find that I needed to dis discard all of those things. They were of no more value than garbage to me so that I may gain what Christ offers to me. John Wesley wasn't there yet. And, but, but he recognized that in looking at himself, he says, you know, are there people who studied philosophy? I far more. Are there people who studied religion? I far more. Are there people who gave alms? I far more. Are there people who, who, who gave up things in their life? He says, I gave up all my worldly goods. I gave, I put my life on the line and, 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 and sent myself into a far off land for the good of, of Jesus Christ. It's the same kind of thing. And he said, I had all of these things. And I've come to realize that none of them are the currency that give me hope for salvation. I think it's so hard for us to understand what a great sacrifice that was for him in mind and heart to say none of these things I could hold up before God and say, look what I have to offer you. But he was seeking for it. Turn back to the book of Romans in chapter 8. We're going to read a few verses there in a few minutes. As we make our way there, 
let's catch up in John Wesley's spiritual journey. So we've said where he was in February. We've said uh, what God brought into his life with Peter Bowler and those other witnesses who testified to him that, yes, there is an assurance. There is an assurance that you can have. And John Wesley, between February and May, has been praying. He's seeking after it. He wants that kind of assurance. May the 24th comes, 1738. And he... Um, writes through his journal, and as he gets to the evening part of that journal, he writes that he went to a society meeting in Aldersgate Street, and I would remind you of how he qualifies it. He says, I went very unwillingly. <laughs> even even uh, God sometimes has to bring us along kicking and screaming. But he was obedient to what his mind knew that he needed to do, even though his heart didn't feel like doing it. He went to that society meeting, he sits in, and as his journal uh, records, uh, they were reading from Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. I read Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans this week, all 23 pages of it, hoping that I might stumble across maybe that one sentence or two sentences that John Wesley might have heard that really kind of was the spark. I, I, I didn't find it myself. Maybe it's written somewhere else that you know, that that thing is recorded, I, I don't know. I didn't find it myself or I would have shared it with you today. But somewhere along in there, in the reading of Martin Luther's preface to this book in the Bible, uh, the person who was reading it was describing the change of the heart that happens when we come to Christ by faith. And John Wesley shares these uh, words that have become so common to us that I felt my heart strangely warmed, that Christ had taken away his sins, even his, and had saved him from the law of sin and death. The words themselves sound so ordinary, and yet they were such a powerful transformative, it was such a transformative part of John Wesley's heart. That warming of the heart brought the assurance that he had so longed for. And from that point on, John Wesley's life was different. When we look in the eighth chapter of the book of the, Ro of, of the book of Romans, we could read the whole chapter. You don't want to take time for us to do that. But there are a couple of parts that I think it would be good for us to hear once again. This is what John says or what Paul says as he begins this chapter of the book. He's built such a case for this up to this point. When you get to chapter 8, you hear Paul saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that a complicated statement? That's, that's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? How much condemnation is there? None. Zero. Nada. For those who are in Christ Jesus by faith, there is no condemnation. Why? Because the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then in verse 3 he says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I love how Paul says, 
what the law could not do, God did. I wonder how powerfully that spoke to John Wesley. John Wesley, I mean, how many times had he read these scriptures? And yet, it was so natural for him to believe that his hope for salvation rested on the works of the law. I've kept the law, therefore God must justify me. And Paul says the the law can't do it. Why? Because it's weak. Salvation through the law would depend on our flesh being strong. It would depend on us in our flesh, in our humanness, being able to perfectly keep the law. That's why the law can't do it. But realizing that the law couldn't do it, God shows up and says, what the law couldn't do, I did. And I did it for you. I did it in sending my son Jesus Christ by his sacrifice on the cross so that by a, as a gift to you through your faith, you may have the assurance that you are a child of God. That's a powerful message. Paul goes on, if you look down in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. Paul says to the Christian, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And remember the context in which Paul speaks here. Those who are familiar with the Roman uh, family household where you have children and you have servants in the household. And, And both can be very well beloved, but they are of a different status. The servants don't have the status that the children do. And Paul says we, we, the, the Spirit doesn't give you uh, the, the spirit of being a servant in the house. The Spirit gives you an understanding that, that, that you are a child. And when you are a child, you are an heir of the Father. And when the Holy Spirit comes to us and speaks to our hearts, that's what He brings with us. That assurance that, that God speaks to us and says, You are my adopted Child, you are not a slave in the the house. You are not a servant in the house. You are not one who needs to question anything that I hold for you in the future. You have the assurance of being the heirs, a joint heir with Christ of my kingdom. It is so powerful to think of the image of God, the image of adoption, when God says to you, you weren't part of the family, but by my choice and my action, I bring you into the family, and I give you all the rights of the family. All of the inheritance of the family are yours, and they are guaranteed not by your obedience, but by my faithfulness. And all of a sudden, in John Wesley's life, he understood it. And his life was never the same. And friends, I wonder how many of us enter even periods of time in life when we we might question, am I really saved? The Bible tells us to be sure of our calling and election. It does tell us that. But there are things that come along that make us, you know, doubt. Doubt slips in. If, If I were to die today... Would I really end up in heaven? Would I truly be saved? And God doesn't want us to doubt. If we do doubt, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily unsaved because of it. John Wesley never thought that 
uh, that, that the assurance of, of Christianity was somehow a prerequisite that, that we are saved, but he sure understood it to be something that we can have. And maybe it's because, you know, if we enter into a time when we're really struggling with a sin, we might question whether or not we're really saved. If we enter into a time when, you know, when we start getting tempted to fall back on, you know, look how good I've been, you know, have I really done enough for God, that might be something that make us, makes us question whether we're really saved. There can be all kinds of things that can plant those seeds of doubt in our mind. But the scriptures lay out something for us that say, you don't have to doubt. God has not given you the need to always doubt. You can be sure. And you are sure not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. That's where our assurance lays. There's, a, there's an interesting little thing in John Wesley's diary of May the 24th of 1738. He begins that day sharing that his morning scripture reading came out of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And it's in 2 Peter 1, verse 4 that the writer uses the language that God has given us precious and magnificent promises of God in Jesus Christ. And it's almost like John decided... He included that as part of his journal entry, recognizing that in that scripture reading, God was setting him up for something that was going to happen that day that he didn't even know at that moment. But he looks back and he remembers, ah, yes, the precious and magnificent promises of God. And he has, my friends, given us precious and magnificent promises. Promises that in Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice on the cross, we have an assurance, not by our works, but by His grace, that we are children of God. And His Holy Spirit is a promise that He will come and, and His Holy Spirit will give us a calm peace of being able to walk through our days. And I recognize that there's not that many of us who will have those face-to-face uh, -face experiences with death like John Wesley had. Those moments when we think, you know, we're, I mean, we're about to cash it in and, you know, it may be in that moment that we might be shaken into a time of questioning, am I really ready for it? But even so, as we walk through our days, we can know that God has saved us. He wants us to have that peace and assurance and he offers it to us today. And friends, I tell you that if you don't have that assurance today, God wants you to have it by, by just coming to Jesus Christ and making sure that you have simply just asked Him for the forgiveness that He wants to give you for the sin that you've committed in, li in life, at, at surrendering your heart to Him and say, Lord Jesus, I just want to follow you. I want to surrender my life to you and let you use it as you would. And, and when we come to Jesus Christ like that, He accepts us by, by nothing more than just coming to Him like that. And He will fill you with His Holy Spirit. He will use you mightily. He will turn your life around. If we're, you know, we're living, living life that we know is unacceptable to God, He will change that by His power. And He will fill your heart with a peace that passes understanding. He wants you to have that today. He will touch your life in transformational ways. Would you receive that gift today?
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wonderful way that you have worked through the lives of so many people. I thank you for John Wesley, for the fact that he recorded so honestly his spiritual journey, and for the fact that many of us might really resonate with uh, where he's been. But I thank you, God, that you touched his heart. I thank you that you changed him and that you worked so mightily through him to share the true gospel of Jesus Christ with countless other people, and we stand in that legacy today. Father, I thank you that you are still changing hearts, and I pray that every heart that surrenders itself to you right now, that you would fill it right now with an assurance, that you would comfort it, that you would speak peace to it, and that you would work right now to change that heart, to change that life, and to set it upon a path that you will bless continually day after day. We thank you mostly for your grace that you give us in the person of Jesus Christ and that you love us enough to give us that gift even today. It is in Jesus' name that we offer these things and all of God's people in agreement say, Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.